Well, good morning. We're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 14. If, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a, some paperback ones over there in the welcome space. We'd love to just give you one, use it, keep it. Uh, but Acts chapter 14, and uh, man, very excited to preach this narrative uh, in Acts 14 this morning. It's been fun studying it. We're going to see an unwavering commitment that these missionaries have to make God known and to continue advancing the gospel, not let anything hold them back which is good for me because I can get pretty easily distracted. And I don't know if you can resonate with this, but easily distracted on like little missions, like, hey, I need to send out an email. Then all of a sudden you like open up your computer and you're like, well, you know, I might need to watch a funny cat video first to get in the mood. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, my junk mail is loaded. And so I need to clean that out. And then you're updating your computer and you're like, wait, what was I here to do? Uh, some of you are like, yeah, I get distracted too. Well, great. Uh, uh, but here's the thing. It's it really becomes a problem when we get distracted from the, the mission that God would have us on, the bigger mission of advancing the kingdom, being about that, and getting caught up with these little missions. And so as we read today, we're going to see these missionaries, they're unwavering. But the crowd, I find myself in studying this, resonating more with the crowd uh, than I do the missionaries. And so can't wait to dive in. Uh, Acts chapter 14, we're just going to start, we're going to do the whole chapter, and we're going to do it in sections. And so we'll start in verse 1. It says this, Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities in Laconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So we're going to stop there. So note that right away we see in, in verse 1 that a number of Jews and Greeks believe. Uh, and, and so they remain there for a long time. So they're preaching the gospel and, and they're boldly declaring what Jesus has done. And God is, is accompanying that message with signs and wonders. And so it's awesome. But there's a group in opposition to them. And it says in verse 2 that they're poisoning the minds of these Gentiles. When you preach Jesus, it goes without saying that it's going to bring out the best of humanity and the worst of humanity. When you preach Jesus, it's going to cause a level of division, kind of take people to a crossroads. I saw this in college ministry, and some of you maybe have heard this story, but when we were in Iowa, just preaching Jesus, and this, this girl that kind of grew up in a church context really came to meet Jesus for the first time. And it was the fall semester, she did the whole retreat thing, got in a Bible study, really awesome, like what God was doing in her life. And then she went home, and I think it might have just been Thanksgiving break, went home and started to tell her family and tell them the stories of being in Bible study and what God was doing. And her family got concerned. In fact, they're like, I think you're a part of a cult. Like, this is not Okay. And the way that her dad expressed his concern for his daughter was by locking her in the house, beginning to verbally assault her. In fact, at one point, it's a true story, dad takes his daughter and shoves her in a closet in the home, refusing to let her out until she denounced 
the church she was a part of, until she promised that she would no longer go back to Bible study and do these things. This girl in there, she's like, I feel like I'm having to choose between God and my dad. And she couldn't. She couldn't denounce like what God was doing. And so she sat in the closet for hours as her dad just verbally kind of assaulted her. And so when you preach Jesus, when he comes in, there may be a level of division. And some of you are like, man, I'm living that. Maybe not that exact thing, but, but in my family, that's a hot-button thing. We just don't talk about that because Jesus brings about division, brings out the, the best. In some regards, there's people that you get along with that you're like, the only thing we have in common is Jesus. And people that it's like, we, have the sa- we are the same family. We've shared the same household. We have all these things in common, but because we don't have Jesus in common, there's division. And so preaching Jesus will cause this divide. And we see that here in the city. There's a level of division that is taking place. And an attempt is made in verse 5. These locals are rising up from the, both the Jews and the Gentiles, the groups of people that n- never get along. But they got along in this, in the fact that they were unified with their leaders to want to kill these people, to kill these missionaries. And how they wanted to kill them in their plot against them was to stone them to death. Now, you have to understand, this would have been a horrific way to die, okay? There's a lot of ways to go. This would not be one of them that you would choose, right? Is what would happen is this is a communal form of judgment exercised by all the people. And in like the case of adultery, perhaps the one that was really sinned against the spouse, they would get to throw the first stone, but then everybody would pick up stones. And again, you can't pick up like a boulder and like shot put it. And the little ones, those aren't going to kill people, but you just find a good, nice-sized stone and just wing it at the person. And the idea behind it is that, that this blunt force trauma would just hit people over and over, and there would be no way of knowing which stone actually caused them to die. And so they would just throw stones until they were buried under this heap of stones and just would die. And this is horrific, slow agonizing way. And so when they learned that this was the plot against him, it says they're like, yeah, we're out. But here's the thing, is they did not flee to Lystra based on fear, but verse 7 provides the motivation that they continued to preach the gospel. See, they weren't motivated by, by fear, but they were motivated by the gospel. That's why they left. We're going to see that they're not afraid of death. That's coming later on in the text. But but they flee to continue to preach the gospel, which this comes from Matthew 10. This will be on the, the, the slides. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. He's going to go on in this chapter and say, Brothers are going to turn against brothers, children against their parents. But he says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He's saying, flee, go to the next town and share Jesus with them. And so that's what they do is they go to the next town. Well, here we are in verse 8, the next town, Lystra. Now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, verse 8. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. Okay, let's stop there. You have to understand the significance. 
He's been crippled from birth. His legs have never been used to carry his body. And so likely you can imagine they, they've not built up any sort of muscle, just kind of skin and bone, chicken legs. Some of you guys see these people in the weight room, think of that, but just worse, right? Like never do a leg day. He's never been able to use his legs. I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm just saying that, that his legs have never carried him. So he's never felt like the, the feeling of like that cool, like green grass, like the good green grass, not the kind of my yard, but perhaps like your neighbor's yard, like under your feet. He's never had his heart rate like pick up from like doing a brisk jog. In fact, he's never been able to just stand up and walk over and give a loved one, a family member, a hug. Like that's not been the case. In fact, likely what's happening is his entire life from birth, he would just be picked up, placed by a city gate, someplace where there's a lot of traffic, and just have to sit there and beg for enough food or enough money to just survive. And this would have been his life. And all of a sudden, these missionaries come to town and, and things are going to change in a hurry for him. And so what does it mean? In, in verse 9, it says, Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. Well, begs the question, wait, so did his faith make him well or did, or did God make him well? And this verse can and has been used wrongly to interpret that, that healing actually is a result of faith not by the good and great hand of God. And so I've seen this abuse firsthand. In, in the context where I was at in Iowa, down the road there's just this kind of movement that really loved to, I would just say it like this, prey upon overzealous college students that were caught up in just the feelings and the emotions but not rooted in truth. And so I remember this, this student going that had this chronic illness and they went there to a prayer meeting to which it was, it was taught, hey, if you believe it, if you name it and claim it, it'll be done for you. And so they pray, and they get prayed over, and the student that, that had this chronic kind of sickness wasn't healed. And the message that they got is, well, not only are you sick, but apparently you're a terrible Christian. Because if you had faith, you would be made well, so apparently you don't have enough faith. Go home and be sick. It's your fault. That's the message, and that's understandable if that's the deduction that it's dependent upon our faith to be made well. But we know that's not the case because in Acts chapter 3, Peter is there, and I believe it's 3, where there's another person that's crippled from birth. And there's an exchange from them. What was that person's faith like? It says in Acts 3 that, that he looked at Peter expecting to get some gold or silver coin. And if you remember the response, Peter's like, hey, I don't have any money. I don't have money, but I have something better. Again, did that person have faith that God could make them heal? No, they were just looking for some money. It wasn't, they didn't have faith that God met there and blessed, but the sovereign hand of God decided to move where he wanted to move and healed that person as well as healing this person. And so when it says he had faith to be made well, perhaps a better way to like think of it, how we would say it in today's day and age, is like, man, they looked and saw that God was moving in his heart. As he was listening to a message, you could just see that, that God was working, that his spirit was soft, and perhaps even the, the made well could be interpreted, made to like trust in Jesus, that, that his soul was, was healed. And if, if, if God is sufficient... In saving the soul, certainly he can fix the body as well. And so he, he, that's what's kind of going on here. And so in verse 10, 
Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And I love this guy who was terrible at directions. He sprang up and began walking around. Like, I love that. Like, God heals him immediately. But the extent to which he's healed, it's not like he like, like stands up like a baby giraffe and his like legs don't really work. Like, he goes from being crippled to like springing up and just like walking around. He's like, they work. This is amazing. And this was going on. So it's not only that he was miraculously healed, but the extent to which God healed him instantaneously. And this has brought about a level of commotion. We're going to see in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, this native language, the gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Now, I'm guessing as Paul and Barnabas are hearing that in a native language that they probably don't know very well, all of a sudden they're just shouting and there's like, ah, like this commotion to which, can you imagine being in that spot? You're like, are we going to die? Is that what's happening here? Like, what are they saying? Can I get an interpreter? But it becomes clear because in verse 12, Barnabas they call Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen, plural, and garlands, plural, to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now, time out. Please don't read ahead. Okay? Eyes up. Okay. Uh, need to understand this. No one at this point has ever met a Greek god. How I know that is because Greek gods don't exist, okay? So they've never, they have a whole temple. They all worship a God who they've never seen do a thing, let alone like seen in, in, in presence. And so they are super excited because not only do they perceive that they're meeting one Greek myth, mythological God, but they have two amongst them. And they call Barnabas, they call him Zeus. And if you can envision like Zeus, the white hair sitting on the cloud thunderbolt, likely Barnabas was the older of the two probably had a few white hairs in his beard and in his hair. They're like, well, you're the old one, so you must be Zeus. And then Paul, he's talking. Hermes, God of language. Well, you must be the God of languages. And so here they are. And again, if you can envision the scene, like they see this healing, they start screaming in their native language, and somebody's like, go get the cows, because it's not a party until a cow dies, okay? So they're like running, and they're like leading these oxen in, and they've, they've got these garlands, and there's this huge, ornate temple to, to Zeus. And having traveled here for seminary and seen these places, it is incredible what was built with crude tools and just sheer like, it's I can't comprehend. Like, they're still trying to figure out, the, like, how did they set these pillars in these temples that are, are solid stone? Like, how did they do this? And some of these places still exist thousands of years later, like these pillars still standing upright. And they think, built these things and built the last, and it was fully staffed with the priest who had never, again, seen their God do a, a thing. And here they are, they're saying to the crowds, these are the gods that we've been worshiping. They're here among us. And so everybody in the town has stopped working. And there's an excitement and garlands and oxen to which, verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, 
men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. And again, likely with the temple in the background. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Yet even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. See, again, we see right away, they rush out and just tore their clothes. This would have been a visual kind of sign of dismay, frustration, this despair that they felt. They're like, oh, I am torn inside and so physically tear their clothes. And they proclaim, we are just men. We are just men. And this happens. We tend to idolize people that get to do some of these works of ministry. And we see these things and we're like, well, it must be them. And so we can put them on a pedestal and worship them versus the one whom they proclaim. And no, this still happens. I was at a conference with a bunch of other pastors, and we idolize things. Again, you see our culture. It's like we have a whole show, like American Idol, like where we idolize them. But we do this in church world, I'm saying. With mega church pastors, like these guys who podcast and the write books, because I was there at this conference, and I, I honestly don't know which like big name it was, but it was a big name guy. It'd be a Chan or Chandler or Piper. Some guy like comes out and you know this. And I I forgot because I was so distracted as this guy who has been like a worker for the Lord to proclaim him, like as he's coming out, so are all the cell phones. And everybody like, even like the turning to like get like the selfie, like with him in the background. In fact, the guy like two rows in front of me pulls out one of like the first generation iPads. The one's like the size of like a TV screen, like pulls it up and like clicks it on video. And it's just like, you know, filming this guy coming out. And I'm like, really? Like here we are, <laughs> like church people, in some regards bowing down to these guys. <laughs> and then this happens even... In the context of Anthem, strap a microphone on myself or or Matt and and people can begin to put you on a pedestal. Like, you're up there preaching, I guess I'm going to hold you up at this level. And some of you are like, don't worry, Pastor, we never do that with you. But but some some have. Some have, because I know this because it's it's turning here. Like, had some people, uh, a couple, leave Anthem Church about a year ago and and the, the reason was, the reason was is they said, we saw you interact with your wife and your kids in, a, in the foyer one day in a way that is just unacceptable. And so we're leaving Anthem Church over that. And to which they're like, really? No. And I knew as soon as they started talking, I'm like, I know exactly which Sunday you're talking about. And, and I'm not excusing it, but it was a Sunday that we were out there. We were trying to do a family photo right? Ready, start the context. And it was one of those deals where there was not enough ice cream in all the land to bribe my four daughters to like behave and look at the camera. And we're trying to corral them and my wife. And I am telling you, what they saw absolutely was sin in me. And and being impatient with my kids and impatient with my, in the church foyer nonetheless. And I'm not, I'm not bummed that they saw that. Like, and somehow I got caught. I'm, 
I, I'm sickened that that sin exists in me, and I hate that about myself. But the reality is, is like those people that we hold up, myself, like the problem isn't like that. The, it is a problem of sin that we need to repent of, but the real problem comes from when they're on a pedestal and they're not allowed to also be in the need of, of, of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Like The problem is, if your expectation of me is that I would somehow be sinless, that's not a biblical expectation. That's not the requirements for an elder found in, in 1 Timothy 3. And so if your expectation is that I would be without fault and not need the blood of Jesus Christ to cover my sins, please don't follow me around. Keep your distance, because I assure you, I will absolutely let you down. And so these guys, they get put on this pedestal, like, oh, you're amazing. They're like, no, we're not. But we'll tell you about a God who is. We're just men, but we know a God who is worthy of worship. Let us tell you about him. And so they have an unwavering commitment to make God known. And they wanted to ensure that God received the glory. But as we continue in verse 8, again, preaching Jesus is going to bring up division. We see in verse 19, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay, stop there. Please, no reading ahead. Okay, so these guys, they came from the previous city that they were in. Just so you know, this is just over 100 miles that some of them walked on foot. In fact, when they fled there, the, the, the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas and the crew, this would have been about a five to six day journey if they can cover about 20 miles a day walking. And so you have to understand the fervor that is felt by this, this group of people that are pursuing them. The fact that they would take off into the wilderness hot on their trail to arrive the same day, just shortly after. And so it's not, you've you got to note that unbelievers can be so passionate, passionately against that which they claim they have no belief in. And doesn't that seem a little bit ironic? Like, it would be really confusing if somebody dedicated their life to destroying the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny. Like, I just, we just can't have any, but no, Eggs off the shelf, like, let's boycott it. We got to get, get them out of here. Like, if somebody dedicated their life, that would be sad. But, but nobody does that. But many atheists, it's not enough to simply not believe in God and hold that conviction themselves. But there's an actively trying to tear Christianity down to, to help others make sure they don't believe. And there's often a visceral kind of response to God. And why is that? Well, because the Easter Bunny and many other religions, they're not claiming lordship over your life. But God of Scripture is. God has something to say about your life, and so it's like, I don't like that. And so there's this visceral kind of response, this passionate opposition. And we see here, there's a, a passionate opposition. The same fervor that, that carried these missionaries to, to go off in the wilderness and find the next town is that on the other end of that same level of fervor and passion is just against where they take the same journey, 100 miles on foot, and here they are. And what they couldn't get done in Iconium, they're now going to seek to get done in Lystra. And so with the crowd that's gathered, they're listening to now the Jews. 
And I imagine the oxen are still there. They're like super confused. Like, are we doing a party or what? Like, what's going on? But, but they're going to go. And in verse 19, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, supposing that he was dead. We've got to unpack this pretty full verse. And so the crowds, upon being persuaded, understand the image of what's going on here. They set down the garlands that they wanted to throw around the necks of these guys and worship them. They set those down and simultaneously pick up heavy rocks, which they would hurl at them. That they would look upon the one who just healed the cripple and would say, now we're going to cripple you. And they, being so eager, they do this. Normally, if you were going to stone somebody to death, you would take them outside. You're like, let's not make a mess and have a heap of stones and a dead body. Let's go outside the city. But they are so, like, worked up in a frenzy, they just start picking up stones at that moment, hurling them. Now they got a dead body, they perceive, and so now they have to drag it outside the city, and there they leave him for dead. This crowd is so fickle, and we can get like that, especially when we get around people that look and, and sound like us. And I found myself in study resonating more with the crowd than the missionaries because I see that fickleness in me. I'm going to share the story where it's easy to, to raise my voice and worship to God. And then in the minivan on the way home, raise my voice with my wife and kids. Do you see that fickleness in you where, where you claim one thing, like, I live for God, and, and, and so you're there, you know, taking your picture of your Bible time and your coffee and you got it out. But then you post it, and you're like, I hope people like that. I'm saying I live for God, but I really like likes. Do you see the fickleness in your heart? We're saying, yeah. My concern is what, what God would have for me. But I also want others to approve of, of my choice of schooling or I need others to approve of my life. I need others to approve of my body and to say that, that I look good. I, I live for God, but, but this picture would communicate I also need the attention of others. And so it is we waver between God, I'm all for you and God, I'm all about myself. And sometimes you understand that fickleness in your heart. It's painfully obvious. We're like, yeah, I say one thing and I do another. Holy Spirit's working on me. That's great. But sometimes it's so deeply seated, you don't even understand the depth of your fickleness. And I just want to give you one example. I've seen this oftentimes in upperclassmen salt company students, people that have been around the ministry for a while, or people that came to like help start this church. That the adults that, that moved from Iowa and found new jobs and new homes. And there's a zeal that starts out. And, and perhaps some of you like are on that right now. There's this excitement and this desire to be, to be used. But sometimes we see that that fades. And it can be a number of, one, a number of reasons. But, but what I'm saying is people that were incredibly excited... Now, not so much. And it's not because we're not still baptizing people. It's not because God isn't growing things. But they just inexplicably say, man, I just don't know what, but I'm losing the passion. And I remember being in Cedar Falls in this church plant. It was, we were in the early days when one of these upperclassmen just saying, man, it just seems like your excitement's not there. In fact, I, I find you being more frustrated 
with what God's doing here. Like, what's going on? Because I don't think the work has changed, but apparently your attitude has. And I remember being parked outside this guy's, I still, man, I could drive you right to the spot. Being parked outside, sitting in the truck, he's in the passenger seat, and it comes out of him finally. See if you can resonate with this. He said this, I'm just afraid that when I graduate, no one will remember me. And no one will remember the work that I've done to help lay a foundation for this church. I'm going to be forgotten. And so I feel like this is taking off and I'm, I'm no longer essential, no longer needed. It manifests itself in other ways where people are like, I just, that person switching from my connection group to the other, that, that's personal. Or I had these people and I was pouring into them and now somebody else is meeting up with them. I don't know if I like that. Or people are like, man, there was a day where I was so needed, I was needed to lead out, and now I'm not. I don't even know if I want to attend. What's being communicated in there is perhaps the joy that you had in the beginning. Your joy was tied to being the Savior rather than making the Savior known. It's this Messiah complex. complex. It's this, this need like, I need to be needed. I need to be wanted. I, I need to be, I want people to look to me and I want to be essential. And I remember looking at this upperclassman and I believe it was in the spirit in that moment where he's saying, I just feel like but no one's going to remember me and the work that was done, which was true. He was so essential for us getting the work started there. But in that moment, I said, I pray to God nobody remembers you. Old preacher said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I get it. I get it, bro. Like, I get it. The desire to to be remembered and and to have people say, wow, this is so essential. I get it. And and the reason I just want to put my finger on it and grind, because this this gets me. I want to be the Savior oftentimes. Like, I want to be wanted and needed. Man, it feels good, doesn't it? But the reality here is, is what we see in these guys. It's like, no. We want Jesus to be Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. It's not about us. It's about advancing his name, his kingdom, his glory. That's where the commitment is. And if we would stay in that, man, I believe our fervor is going to stay constant. But if there's this need to be needed, we're going to continue to waver. And we're going to find ourselves fickle because we're going to waver between wanting to make God's name great and wanting to make our name great. And those things are in opposition. Rarely do those align. And so we're going to find ourselves being about God's, God's name and then ours, and, and the up and down. And I don't want that for you, so I want to say, what's at the root? And Paul and Barnabas at the root is this unwavering commitment to make God known, and I think this is on the screen, Hebrews 13.8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so if we would just tether ourselves to that, if we would be rooted in that, making Christ known, it's going to be constant because he is constant. And so an unwavering commitment to make God known, even to the point of death. And so when we see in the narrative that Paul is, is drug outside the city and left for dead, in verse 20 it says this, but when the disciples gathered around him, now, there's a small team traveling with them, and, and you have to imagine that they are praying. As they're watching this unfold and they're seeing Paul be stoned to death, that they're in the back just praying, God, would you have mercy? That's our friend. That's our preacher. And they're watching his 
body, be drugged through the city, bloody, limp. There's great concern. And their friend is thought to be dead, at least by a whole crowd of angry people. And they're seeing this, and he gets left out there, and as the crowd leaves the body, his friends come up, it says, and they gathered around him. And I don't know like, what that looked like in the scene, but, but we're going to see like life starts to come back in him. You don't know if it's like, like a finger twitch, and they see that, like, <gasps> or if it was his like, eye started to open, like what it was. But it says in verse 20 that, that Paul... After they gathered around him, he rose up. I imagine to much jubilation and rejoicing and joy, he rose up. And there's such an excitement, but only for a moment, because it says he rose up and he re-entered into the city. Likely blood dripping from his head. His clothes still torn exposing where the hateful rocks had had hit him and bruises forming. He's bloody, he's marred, and he rose up and heads back into the city. Are you kidding me? What would possess someone? And so, but for Paul, the, the thing that he is just compelled by is the job's not finished. If they die, they will spend an eternity apart from God. They are confused. They are hurting. Hurt people hurt people. So he reenters the city with a broken body and pleads with a broken people to trust Jesus Christ. And Paul understands he is not better than them. He was one of them. He was there. What is it? Acts 7 when Stephen is being stoned and they're laying their, their, their coats so that they can really loosen up their arm. They say, Paul, would you watch these? We're going to go stone this guy. Yep, got it. He's been there and thrown some rocks. And so it's easy for him to remember and say, I'm not better than them. I was there. He's familiar with the internal hurt, the, the zeal that is misplaced. So resonating with Jesus who said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul does not turn from their brokenness, but he turns to it. He doesn't turn away from it, but he turns and goes back to it. And I just want this, some of you have been blessed to walk with Jesus for a while. Please do not cast judgment on the unbeliever or the baby believer who is struggling today with sins to God. God has given you victory over. We need not forget what God has done, and Paul doesn't. And because of the greater desire that he has to advance the kingdom of God, where he sees brokenness, it's evident that the kingdom of God has not come there. And so he sees brokenness, is like, wow, we need the kingdom to come. God's will be done in that place. And so he doesn't turn from brokenness, but he turns to it, following the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus in Mark 2 said this in verse 17, is it not those who who are well, who need a doctor, but it's those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the Pharisees could never embrace that truth. Practically, Anthem, if you encounter another sinner within the context of this building, somebody that their sin is just going before them, 
man, I would want us in light of what we see over and over in Scripture, like, to not turn from their brokenness, but, but turn to it. Like, if you in, encounter somebody that, that, is, that is not a finished product yet, like, welcome, like, we're all there. Some of us do a better job of masking it. But if somebody's not a finished product, like, what are, where else do you want them? Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're broken, you're going to have to go outside the church. No, like, because we've been broken and God has been gracious to us. We want to come alongside of others. Otherwise, you've got to stop praying the Lord's Prayer that says, God, would you forgive us our sins as we forgive others? And so, Paul, having been forgiven for being a part of stoning other people, for being overzealous in the wrong direction, he shows mercy. Verse 20, he entered into the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, these places that all wanted to kill him. He goes back, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Their mission that they could not be detracted from was making God known, advancing the kingdom. And they didn't want to just settle for making converts. You see that they come back around to speak encouragement. He's going to write letters to these places. They're going to appoint leaders within these churches. They want to see them healthy. And again, throughout this whole thing, you see a thread that, that we need not get distracted from the greater mission that God would have us on, which is advancing his kingdom in his name, his glory. And I was blessed by a pastor friend of mine, Jake Each, this week, who says, yeah, but sometimes we settle for lesser missions. We say, well, I guess lesser missions being like getting this house project done or, you know, school uh, I'm trying to think of like some of those things that like I'm looking at Kirk is like, I got to get this deer. Like things that were like, this is the top priority right now. And so it's not that those things implicit, like these missions that we can have, it's not like that they're then inherently evil or bad, but they are lesser than what God would have for us. And perhaps they're a part of the bigger mission, but sometimes they can become the sole mission in and of themselves. And we get easily distracted and perhaps it's not just that we get distracted from the mission, but perhaps it's we settle for lesser missions because we settle for lesser than identities. Not forget what we're supposed to be doing, but we forget who we are. Perhaps that's the greater problem. Meaning this, like, if you ask, it's like, who are you? It's like, oh, I'm Audrey. Well, no, that's your name. Like, who are you? Well, this is my, you know, I'm studying this. No, that's your major. Like, who are you? People respond. It's like, well, I align with this political party or my skin is this color. It's like, no, but, but who are you? And perhaps, perhaps your behavior problem is a result of an identity problem. Forgotten your identity and that's what's leading to the behavior that's unfit for, for someone that ought to identify 
first and foremost is a child of God who's been adopted because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is our greater identity. It's Jesus Christ, what he's done, and it's because of him that we can be adopted and made right. And so that's the, the greater. And so perhaps some of the problem is, is settling for lesser identities. And when we do that, and these behavior problems fall from that, we can, we can start to try and modify behavior. It's like, well, this behavior's not great. And so one way to go about it, instead of just identity and everything would flow from there, we said, well, you know, maybe go through and clean up your profile pictures or, or here, maybe do this and, and do that. And so we can start to modify the behavior, but never getting to the root, which is, man, if you were in Jesus and you understood what God had for you, when you know who you are and you know home is heaven, which we see these missionaries acting out of that identity, accomplishing that mission, vision, they are just, they're undeterred. They are rooted. And if we're going to do that, it's not by just mustering up in willpower, but it's having the right identity. And that identity leads us to be a part of this right mission. And so we're going to celebrate with communion this morning. And it's an opportunity for us to remember that because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, when his body was broken, his blood was shed, because of that, we can be made right with God, forgiven. Because he took the punishment that we deserve. And so as we take communion this morning, we want to remember that. And because Jesus has bought us with his body and blood, because of that, he's commissioned us to not run from brokenness, but actually run to brokenness. And I truly believe, Anthem, you have to understand this, that, that these missionaries, what they're getting to experience living in that identity and on that mission, it is truly to their joy and God's glory when we do that. And I want that for you. I want you to not lose sight of that because I understand when we do and we give into the flesh. And some of those illustrations I shared it is miserable to live like that. But the most fulfilling thing is to live how God has intended and created us, to be about his glory. And when we do that, that is where our joy is found. And so we can do that because, solely because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so as we take communion, would you just remember the necessity that is represented there? that it's only by what Jesus has accomplished that we can be made right. Like Paul, that we can go from this one extreme of opposition to the gospel to the other of wanting to advance it. And so let's remember who we are, who God was claim us to be because of what Jesus and what he's called us to do. And so I'm going to invite the band up as we just pray. Heavenly Father, do thank you. Thank you that you have bought us with the blood of Jesus Christ, that you have not only just saved us from our sin, but you have invited us in to be a part of the mission, each one of us, to go and to make disciples. And Lord, we just declare it has truly been to our joy to follow in this way. And Lord, those that have wandered from that, that have, like myself, so quickly forgotten who we are and what we're supposed to be about. 
and find ourselves in these ditches, distracted and trying to find joy in other things that are certainly not you, God, would you have mercy on us this morning? Would you draw us back, create a clear level path for our feet to walk in, to accomplish your will, to make your name great? Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us or forsake us in our sin because of what you've done in Jesus and and that you've given us the Spirit. So God, we just want to remember that as we respond with communion today and just testify to that as we respond in worship. And so Lord, we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.